Hello, and welcome back to the Self-Healer Soundboard, How to Do the Work Masterclass. Last episode, we explored trauma bonds, or the different relationships many of us carry with us from childhood, though they no longer serve us in our adulthood. As social creatures, we spend a lot of time in relationships, making changes to these patterns most necessary. To heal our relationships, we must begin to show up differently, which often includes setting new boundaries or limits with ourselves and others. This episode, Jenna and I will dive into chapter 10 of How to Do the Work, Boundaries. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on another episode for How to Do the Work Masterclass, Boundaries. Now, the reality is that many people have heard of this concept. We've all heard of boundaries, yet so many of us are unaware of their importance. So let's begin first by talking about what a boundary actually is. Such a good point, Jenna. I know for me, boundary was not a term that I had ever heard spoken of. So what is a boundary? A boundary is really simply a protective limit established between myself and another person. This limit helps us define ourselves as separate individuals, where I end and where someone else, so like you, Jenna, you begin. Clear boundaries enable us to honor our own separate and unique individual needs, the needs of our physical self, our emotional self, or our spiritual self. Being able to honor these authentic needs allows us to have authentic relationships. So boundaries are integral to having that separation. So I can show up as a separate expressed human in my authenticity. The ultimate goal of boundaries and why we talk about them so much is safety. Having limits actually allows us to stay in a physiologically, a physically, and an emotionally balanced state, which is necessary to connect safely with others. Those of us who have been here for past episodes have heard us explore the nervous system in particular. So boundaries become the way that we can safely experience the world around us. So those all sound like great things, right? You have safety, you can safely experience the world around you, you're connected to your inner voice, yet so many of us grow up in environments that really are boundaryless, with lacking boundaries, little boundaries, or really no boundaries at all. I, in particular, grew up in a completely boundaryless environment where there really was no separation between myself, my own needs, and then the self and needs of those around me, particularly my siblings and my parents, right? So there was no differentiation between what Jenna needed and what those around me needed. It all just kind of blended like we were one giant blob moving through life. So for me, growing up, the term boundary was really only a word that I had heard in basketball practice or in other sports practice. It was completely foreign, right? It had no connotation to what we're talking about here. So like I just mentioned, any talk of boundaries within an interpersonal relationship were completely non-existent. So over the years as an adult, I began then witnessing what my own response to boundaries was. Someone sets a boundary with you. Well, how does that feel? Immediately for me, it would feel very foreign and very threatening. A boundary was a basketball term, right? I had no context for it. So someone setting a boundary with me immediately became kind of a personal attack when I didn't have a full understanding or knowledge of the importance and really the necessity in so many cases of boundaries. I'd immediately take someone's boundary setting as a personal offense, which then strengthened my own ego story. So my own subconscious narrative of I'm not good enough, they must not love me, they don't want me, and so on. 
So very similar to Jenna, what you're sharing here. So many of us were not modeled boundaries. So we grow up without them. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I'm definitely not someone who had heard that concept of boundaries. And I had no awareness of how lacking they were in my life. So when we think of, you know, a context or growing up without boundaries, so let's talk about the opposite of having boundaries at first. This is called enmeshment. So some of you listening might have heard this term. And essentially what enmeshment means is lacking those points of separation or those limits between humans. Oftentimes this results in a, for lack of a better word, a group think. Um, some of us might have heard this in our households growing up. Sometimes it expands outward. Um, if we're a part of a religious institution or a cultural institution, we might hear language where we are grouped together in this group think mentality where we're told we do this and not that, or we don't like this type of person or this type of action is quote unquote bad. And like I said, a lot of times there's influences, whether it's our family um, of origin or sometimes the influences of religion or of culture. But what's underlying it is this idea that we all have to and naturally do believe or think the same things. And that's just not simply true. However, those of us that grow up in enmeshed households like myself, so the two predominant or most frequently um, used family mantras for me that very much reflects this lack of boundaries is this idea that family is everything. Um, and this was this idea that there was this core family unit where we were all represented as similar individuals. When at our core, we weren't actually as similar as that mantra might have made us out to seem. Another mantra, another result, let me back it up for a minute. Another result of this lack of boundaries or this enmeshment on top of group think can result in actually a shared emotional experience. So first we have we share beliefs and then some of us might even share feelings. Listeners might have heard a concept called emotional contagion, which is just that when one individual say feels stress before we know it, the whole system shares in that feeling. So the second family mantra that was repeated throughout my childhood that connects with family is everything is always something. And this is another example of that enmeshment. So when one individual in my home, be it my mom, my dad, my sister, or me had a stressful event in our personal lives, that feeling of always something was transferred throughout the whole family. Meaning really simply, when I was stressed, the whole family became stressed. When my mom was stressed, the whole family became stressed. And again, I share this, this is an example of lacking those limits of not allowing one human in a system or in a family to have an emotional experience that's separate from everyone else. When we lack boundaries, everything like Jenna mentioned earlier gets kind of caught together in a blob where we're all feeling, thinking, and in some instances being the exact same way. When the reality is we are unique individuals who have at our core different unique individual, physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. So lacking of boundaries, again, removes us from that authenticity that lies within. So powerful, Nicole, because without that authenticity, without that unique voice or connection to you, really, you do become that blob, as we've been talking about, where you don't have an identity really as a self because you're quite literally you and everyone around you. So for 
this boundaryless environment that we've been talking about in both of our childhoods. I know I think many of you listening can maybe reflect back on and see where there were boundaries lacking or really no boundaries at all. And a good indicator of that is when there are no boundaries or you come from a boundaryless childhood like we do, there's really heaps of room for enmeshment or that emotional contagion, as Nicole's saying, where it's in her family, it was, it's always something, you know, if dad's stressed, then everyone's stressed. Um, and that really looks like bonding, that sort of blob mentality, as we've been saying, is really is a bonding. So for my family's core bonding really was through that emotional contagion, through shared emotional experiences. In my case, it was shared emotional experiences of fear and stress and really an ultimate panic for safety and well-being, especially during the more turbulent years of my parents' custody battle. It was a constant, very hypervigilant stress of my mother looking out for our safety. And when mom felt that, the children felt that. So my mom, who, you know, as a result of her own unhealed childhood and all of her lifelong trauma that she's dealing with, was always terrified for our safety and well-being. As I mentioned during those court years, it was it was a high fear of her. So when she was heightened and sad or fearful, all of the children were too. My brothers and I were both shaking and fearful and sad right behind her, if not quite literally holding her hand. So that chaos was really our comfort and it united us with a false sense of connection. So through that chaotic comfort, we really felt united. That was that bonding that we got to have. We were just bonding over this shared emotional experience or that enmeshment. On the contrary, as years progressed, so a little later on, ages like eight, nine, and 10, getting more into those years of that really turbulent custody battle, I really began noticing a developing sense of this hyper-individualism. So this sense of really taking care of myself, always relying on only myself, a complete lack of trust within another to care for or to meet my own core needs, even as a child. And now as a child, I'm not responsible for meeting those core needs. I'm reliant and dependent on a caretaker or a parent figure to do that. As an adult, I do become responsible to meet those needs. So that hyper-individualism that I developed during those years was really developed as a protection against all the boundary violations or really lack of boundaries in all of those earlier years. Thank you for giving that example, Jenna. I think that's a really, really common one where in an attempt to protect ourselves, some of us go from that experience of enmeshment or where we lack boundaries and we feel very unsafe, almost to the complete other end of the spectrum where we become human on an island, where we don't even show up into relationship with needs. Then, of course, there's all of us in between, myself included, where we might continue to show up in relationships with increasing amounts of anger that over time turns into resentment. As we continue to hold everyone and the whole really world around us responsible for not having our authentic needs met, not understanding that it's all of these protections that so many of us developed in an environment where we didn't have boundaries, where we didn't feel as safe as we could, where we weren't able to fully express our needs, all of these protections remove us from the possibility of expressing our authentic needs into adulthood. And instead of looking at ourselves and the role that our childhoods play, so many of us point the finger outward like I know I did. So let's talk about how do we begin to shift our relationships? How do we essentially begin to cultivate safety? So we're gonna talk about three boundary types. The first is what we're calling physical boundaries. So what is a physical boundary? 
physical boundaries have to do with the amount of personal space or of physical contact that is most comfortable for you. This also includes preferred timing. When do you like to be touched? When don't you like your body to be touched? Physical boundaries also include your overall comfort with verbal comments on your appearance, on your sexuality, anything again to do with your physical being. It could be not how it's treated um, or how it's touched, how is it spoken about. Physical boundaries also include our overall comfort with our personal space. Um, are we comfortable sharing it with others, our room, our home? And now, because most of us spend most of the time on the virtual world, this also includes our virtual space. How comfortable are we sharing our passwords, our accounts with friends or other loved ones? So shifting into another set of boundaries or what we are calling mental or emotional. And mental or emotional boundaries have to do with our overall comfort, sharing our personal thoughts, opinions, and beliefs with others. This is the important part without changing them to match those of another or insisting that the other person change their thoughts, opinions, or beliefs to a match our own. So again, this is allowing us to have separate opinions about life, beliefs, thoughts. Mental and emotional boundaries also have to do with our ability to choose which personal thoughts, opinions, or beliefs that we share with others without feeling the pressure to overshare and just as equally allowing those around us, those we're in relationship with, to choose how much they share with us without pressuring them to overshare. So a concept I want to talk about here, which definitely maps on to my relationship experience, is something that I call emotional dumping or emotional oversharing. So when we're talking about you know, emotions and bringing our thoughts and our feelings into relationship, some of us engage in a practice of oversharing, where we are just sharing our thoughts, our feelings, whatever is alive for us in any given moment with those around us without considering or being empathetic to them, to where they're at in life, to their emotional bandwidth or availability to hear what we have to say. So unlike venting, so I know a lot of you listening might say, well, wait a minute, I heard talking about something stressful, especially with supportive loved ones, is helpful. So yes, venting can help relieve stress and is very often associated with productive outcomes, feeling supported, maybe even having a new plan of action. Now this is different. Venting is different than emotional dumping. Emotional dumping more often involves circular or, or obsessive thoughts usually connected to our emotional addictions. So using myself and my story as an example, um, when I came to realize how much I lacked boundaries in my life, how much my family mantra of family is everything and always something was impacting my relationships, I saw a very common pattern in myself. And it was a very difficult one to witness, if I'm honest. And what I saw in myself was I continued to use my relationships to express my stress. And what did this look like? This looked like me always calling. For instance, I saw this in my relationship with my family, always calling mom, my sister, whoever, when I had something stressful, particularly a health-related stress. I love to go to my family, like Jenna said earlier, for that false sense of closeness. I saw the same pattern, however, in my friendships. And one friendship in particular, I came to notice how often I called these few particular people, though this, this one that comes to mind when I talk about this, all of the time when I was stressed. And what did I do? I just dumped. I never asked them where they were at in life. Did they have the bandwidth? Did they have even the time to listen to me in that moment? I just plowed through with whatever the latest stress was, whatever was always something on my mind. 
And what I came to realize, going to these relationships with only stress really did limit how deep they were, how much I knew the other person. Because what I came to realize, and this is the painful part of it for me, I was taking up all of the air in the room. There was a reason I wasn't feeling emotionally connected to these people because I wasn't, because I was an emotional dumper. So when we're thinking about emotional limits, mental limits, these are the type of resources that we're considering as well. Are we bringing all of our emotions to a particular relationship? Do we have a limit? Are we checking in with the other person to see if they're available? And can we talk about something else? Or is this all we're doing in relationships? Shifting to the final category of boundaries, resource boundaries. So do we have time? Do we have energy? We have resources around our stuff, the things we have. So what are resource boundaries? Resource boundaries include our ability to exercise choice around where and how our time is spent, avoiding any tendency to people please or right to show up for someone else solely and not for ourselves. Resource boundaries also have to do with our ability to not take personal responsibility for everyone else's emotions around us. This is for all the fixers, the helpers out there, understanding our limits, that we can't control the feelings of those around us. Resource boundaries also have to do or also include our ability to limit the amount of time we spend dumping. Resource boundaries also include our ability to limit emotional dumping, that concept I talked about earlier. Our ability to not always be the person who's overwhelming others with our emotions and to really explore and investigate if we're always on the receiving end of the emotional dumpers in our life. While all these boundaries are really so important, the resource boundary always sticks out to me because it's talking about your own time and energy and emotion. So it's really a core or foundational boundary. So a lack of resource boundaries, as you can imagine, like Nicole mentioned that the fixer, the caretaker, the helper, a lack of resource boundaries or someone with a lack of resource boundaries might identify themselves as one of the archetypes we've talked about in how to do the work masterclass episodes. And that was the inner child and trauma bond episodes where we talk about the caretaker archetype. So a lack of resource boundaries may identify as this caretaker archetype where really you're constantly showing up with this sense of selflessness or everyone else's needs before yours, right? So this person who's always meeting the needs of others first and often unconsciously then depleting and betraying their own self and their own needs. So not understanding their own limits. As a child, I quite literally didn't know my own needs or my own limits. I instead saw others' needs as my own. So for example, I have two brothers who, when we were younger, if they were home sick from school or not feeling well, we had this little metal cowbell that I would give them to ring anytime they needed anything. So if I heard the bell ringing, I would come running gleefully to serve them whatever it needed to be, toast or orange juice, a blanket. I really loved being on call. I wanted to be needed. I saw their need as my own. That continued into middle school, high school. I spent all of my free time, all of my spring breaks rebuilding houses for Habitat for Humanity. I went directly from high school and moved to Boston to serve in AmeriCorps and then went into teaching, went into nursing and working in bedside and pediatric and adult oncology, always in this caretaker role, always in this seeking another's need first before meeting my own. Now, while I found immense joy and purpose in caring for others, it was there was genuine purpose there and genuine love. 
there was always a feeling of being on call to others or on call to the world around me. While it sounds great that this is talking about serving and volunteering or caretaking for others, we're not actually serving others if we haven't first served ourselves. So to begin to break this habit, first I had to witness myself. I had to witness myself without judgment and without critique and then get really responsible. So I had to see that this is what I was doing. While yes, I loved it, everyone who's known me in my life has known me as a volunteer or in service of something or someone, I really spent some time giving a hard look at seeing where I was serving others as a way to just ignore or betray myself. I actually led a service project a few years ago in San Jose and did some reflecting afterwards that that the time of the project, the travel required, what it meant for work or the programs I was doing on either end really didn't work. I actually suffered in the long run. And I realized that my sense of duty or serving to go meet someone else's needs was actually really irresponsible of myself. It was very selfish of me to put that first because it actually meant full betrayal of my own need, which in the grand scheme of things is actually doing a disservice to those around me. So I really had to just witness and really get honest what was selfless, what was selfish. So I could see where I was expending all of my time volunteering or serving as a way to really then just distract myself and take care of everyone else except for me. Such a great example, Jenna, and because what you're describing here really does illustrate for the listeners the connection between the roles that so many of us continue to play in relationships and boundaries. And it is often in those earliest experiences where we either had too rigid, not enough, lacking boundaries entirely, where we begin to assume these roles. Again, as our best attempt or adaptation, our way to get our needs met. However, we continue to repeat the roles that no longer serve us. So to all the helpers out there, all the caretakers, all of the nurses, all of the people that are in those roles, putting someone else's needs, factoring them in, this doesn't mean that you're on the wrong career path at all. It just is a suggestion to factor yourself in. Because like Jenna said, using the, the airplane analogy, right, with our, with our masks, they say that for a reason, right? Put our own mask on first. And it's not until we are a full, whole, balanced, safe person, even those of us that do show up day in and day out to help others, we can't really do so fully, authentically until we're cared for first. So let's talk about boundary work. I'm sure a lot of listeners out there know that they need some boundaries or maybe are unsure of what boundaries are or aren't present in our lives. So the first thing I want to start with when we're talking about boundary work is a reminder that boundaries are for you. They are new ways, new choices, new ways of being, ways you're going to show up to create the change that you need in your relationships, maybe to create the safety for your own self-expression. They are not ultimatums, consequences we give to those around us. If they don't say or do or change in whatever direction we want or need them to, that we will do X, Y, or Z. Again, boundaries are where we change. So I didn't ask the people around me to stop talking about stressful things or stop talking about health-related topics. I stopped talking about those things. So reminder, boundaries are for us. All right, to get started, we're going to break boundary work down into three simple, yet of course, those of us who have been working with boundaries, we know in action, not so simple steps. So the first step is to define the boundary. This includes a self-assessment where we begin to witness ourselves in the world as we engage in relationships. 
the relationship with ourself included here because boundaries apply all of the same. Do we know our own personal limits for our physical body, for our emotional selves? Do we know how to access that point of intuition where we can actualize authentic self-expression? That's what we mean when we say the relationship with ourselves. And then of course, how do I present myself to the world? So we wanna begin to witness. Go watch yourself consciously as you're operating, exploring our boundaries present, and if not, where can we begin to create some new limits so that we can feel safer to express our needs in the world? Some of you who have been on the journey with us for a little while now may be sensing a theme amongst all of this self-healing work, and that is the first step of witnessing. You must first be in a stage of self-inquiry or self-exploration to really just pull back and be witness to yourself and your habits and your patterns. Now, we do this a lot in the self-healer circle, our private online healing community, and Often every month in each of the courses we release, they are given prompts in some way that dive into self-exploration. When doing this self-witnessing or this self-inquiry yourself, some of you will know immediately what relationships you'd like to change. They might pop right into mind. And some of you are going to be largely disconnected, like I was, from your own experience of those relationships, focusing mainly on others' wants, needs, and feelings, or simply lost in your own thinking mind. So you're going to be wrapped up over there like I was and sometimes am in their needs, their wants, their schedule, what life is like for them and not identifying my own. So we're going here from our thinking mind into our feeling body. I want to piggyback on that and reiterate what Jenna just said. A lot of you listening out there might not know. You've not been in the habit of asking yourself, of looking for any needs you might have in a given moment. If you're like Jenna and myself, your autopilot probably was looking outside of yourself. So when we begin to turn that spotlight inward, there might be a big gaping hole. We might not actually know. And for me, that was a really big pivotal moment. Those of you who tuned in, I think it was last episode, I shared with you the one moment in time where, again, in an emotional dumping episode with that particular friend I was describing earlier, sharing all of my stress about all of these wants and needs that everyone around me had had, she very calmly asked what I wanted. And that was the first moment where that knowing was, or that lack of knowing, I should say, was evident in myself. So I share that with all of you to, like Jenna suggested, help you extend that compassion. Know that many of us might begin with a non-knowing, with an empty hole, and this now begins that journey back to our authentic self and its needs. So once we've gotten clear, and again, for many of us, this is a process, a process of evolution, of learning to be that witness that Jenna was describing. Once we got clear, the next step in boundary work is to set the boundary, to communicate or to actualize the boundary in our behavior. I'm gonna go over these tips briefly here and I go into them much deeper in how to do the work, but it's important to consider the timing of the communication. It is never helpful to set a boundary in the middle of a screaming, yelling, emotionally activated argument. So a helpful tip when we're going to set a new boundary or learn how to be in a new way with an individual with whom we're in a relationship, don't set up an expectation that we're gonna do so in a moment of conflict. Picking as emotionally neutral of a time as possible for both parties, remembering that the other person is gonna play a role. So even if we're calm and now's a good time for us, if our partner comes home, if our friend comes home, if our roommate comes home and they're emotionally activated, probably not the best time. 
So timing is important. Pick as emotionally neutral of a time as possible to begin to set a new boundary. If and when we're communicating about our new boundary to the individual who will be on the receiving end of it, the individual with whom we're in a relationship, we want to begin to practice using I language, right? Because remember, the boundary is for me. So I'm going to show up and begin to speak to this person the ways now I will be different. This is where we want to avoid you, telling the person what they do and how they made me react. While, of course, they're playing a role, remember, boundaries are for us. This part takes practice. A lot of us use that you language all of the time. So we can begin this practice all of the time. Use the word I, take ownership. And when we're communicating about our new boundary, this is a great time to put that practice into action. Using I language, again, as opposed to you language, because boundaries are for us. When we do make that communication, practice using as calm, assertive, and respectful language as possible. Again, this goes back to that tip around timing. When we're not emotionally activated, many of us have more access to calmer, more respectful words than when we're emotionally activated. Of course, the delivery, the language, how we're speaking, the volume is all going to affect how the person's able to receive the information that we're sharing. Now, the final tip here is practice, plan ahead, rehearse what you're going to say. For those of us who aren't used to setting new boundaries, it's going to be uncomfortable. Practice can be very, very helpful. And once we go to to deliver the boundary, when it's appropriate and safe, of course, being open to negotiation, being open to hearing how the other person is receiving your new limit. And again, when safe, And when appropriate, now the two of you can come to the table and negotiate that boundary. Now, of course, this doesn't apply to all boundaries, especially around our physical body. These might be no compromise areas where we won't negotiate, but some areas we can, right? So getting clear on what we need and then being open to negotiation when appropriate and when safe. This brings us then to step three, which in my opinion is the most difficult step. Step three is to maintain the boundary. Once we've set up ourselves to be and act different in a given situation, we don't want to go back to those old habits and patterns that no longer serve us. No matter how guilty we feel or how much we're experiencing what I call the feel-bads. So for me, very similar to Jenna, not having boundaries, putting everyone else before me, identifying with that overachiever archetype who doesn't like to disappoint anyone or anything in my environment, when I don't live up to my own expectations sometimes that I set for myself or the expectation that someone else might have for me, I feel bad, so bad that I might not even set the boundary to begin with or I might guilt myself into taking it down. So the boundary, once it's set, it's our job to maintain it, to keep it up, regardless of what the other person is saying or doing in reaction to it, and that might be there too. If this new boundary, I should say, is unexpected, if this is another human, as most of us are, who has a wound, an abandonment wound, for instance, there could be a reaction on the other end. So this is where we want to maintain that boundary regardless of what's happening around us. You're human. And when setting a boundary for yourself or with another, you're then setting a boundary with another human who does have wounds, who does have reaction, who does have emotion. So there are so many variables that go into play, which is quite literally why 
we call this the work. It actually is, it's an action. It is difficult sometimes. It's really a doing of the work. So doing the work for boundary setting, we have step one to witness and define the boundary, really going into that self-exploration, that self-inquiry of knowing what your needs are, what makes you feel comfortable, what makes you feel safe, doing a little inventory on yourself first. So we've now step one, defined the boundary through self-witnessing and exploration. Step two, we've set the boundary using those communication tips Nicole mentioned. And step three, maintaining that boundary. In order to help you do this, to define, to set, and also to maintain the boundary, if you want to visit back, it's page 199 in How to Do the Work. There are a few pages of scripts for you to actually use and fill out and try on in real life to help guide you through defining, creating, and setting and maintaining boundaries in your own life. Remember, This is an amazing opportunity again and a necessity to cultivate self-compassion and self-love, especially for those of you who are new to boundaries, new to self-witnessing. A really great way to approach this work is with that sort of childlike wonder when you see a child roaming around outside or looking up at the sky beginning to cultivate that same curiosity without judgment, without that critical voice, and really witnessing ourselves and remembering to love ourselves or to continue trying to love ourselves along the way. So while boundaries is a vast topic with so many different inner topics, we have a few questions that have called in, which we're going to segue to now. The first question is from Gabrielle. Hi, Dr. Nicole. My name is Gabrielle, and I'm calling from Alberta, Canada. I have a question about setting boundaries with a parent. I've been working on setting boundaries with my dad, who is currently struggling with alcohol addiction and some other issues that have been going on since childhood. I've found some new ways to kind of let myself feel better with the situation, but I don't feel like I can get up the courage to directly talk to him about it. Is it enough for me to just set the boundary for myself and know in my own head what I want the boundary to be, or should I be working towards explaining the boundary to him and having it out in the open between the two of us? Thanks so much. Thank you, Gabrielle, for your question. Gabrielle's question is about navigating boundaries with someone who sounds to be in active addiction. And this someone for Gabrielle is her dad. So listeners out there, there might definitely be a someone who is coming to mind um, in terms of this question. So how how do we navigate relationships? I want to first acknowledge um, Gabrielle, because it sounds like she's already done some self-witnessing to explore these dynamics of her relationship, particularly in relationship with dad. And I'm celebrating this or acknowledging this at this moment because I know how painful it can be for so many of us as we do begin to witness our own habits and patterns, especially when we see them coming from the caregivers around us, from our parents, from, say, dad. If dad did have an active part in Gabrielle's life, chances are we'll see where these patterns came from. And I say that to say that can bring up a lot of feelings. So the work, the deeper emotional work here is to allow the space for those feelings. However it is that Gabrielle's feeling as she began this witnessing journey, allow that to compassionately be what's so. I also want to celebrate Gabrielle for 
already having found new ways to feel better about the situation. She's begun, it sounds like, to utilize some new boundaries, helping her to create much needed safety. I want to honor this because this is a great example of using boundaries for ourselves, right? Gabrielle's here saying, I've come up with new ways to better manage how I feel about this relationship with dad. I didn't ask dad to change. And I want to honor that because that's what a boundary really is. It's for us to create a different experience for ourselves. Yes, of course, as a byproduct, those around us. So maybe dad over time might start to change. But again, this isn't a moment of Gabrielle pointing the finger to dad and saying, you do differently. And as we were hearing, that's not the case. She's already come up with some new ways to feel better. So now the question really is, do I have to communicate this directly to dad, the work that I'm doing? Now, communication can be helpful in some, in some circumstances or in some relationships. When we directly tell someone how and why we're, we're going to be different, we give them a heads up. And this heads up can be helpful because chances are, especially when we're thinking about a relationship like father-daughter, that relationship has existed for quite some time. And when I say that, what I'm offering is the reality that expectations have been built up. Dad's come to expect certain things of Gabrielle, and just like Gabrielle has come to expect certain things of dad. So now, as Gabrielle begins to show up differently, it is possible that she might begin to violate that old expectation that's been validated time and time again. So in some instances, and I'm not saying this applies to Gabrielle in your particular question, but in some instances, that verbal dialogue, me saying, dad, you might begin to experience me different in the following ways, can give dad now a narrative to understand that difference that he might very well been feeling. So this can be helpful for the other persons. The communication can be helpful for the other person to make sense of what they're going to experience as different in you. Now, this doesn't mean that communication is always possible or always safe. And when it's not possible, we can communicate just as powerfully in our action. So it's up to us as individuals. So to answer your question more directly, Gabrielle, you get to decide if you want to share, and maybe it's not now, maybe it's over time with dad. If you want to, like you said, get the courage, I'd be interested in exploring maybe what the fear is. How will dad react? Or do you imagine he might react once you share these new awarenesses with him? Once you obviously feel safe to navigate into that, then you might decide to have this conversation with dad. Though to simplify the answer, is it necessary communicating? Absolutely not. We can communicate in our behavior. So by Gabrielle, you doing what you're already doing, finding the new ways, implementing the new ways to feel differently, you're already actioning toward that new boundary. And I just want to quickly reiterate the communication tips that Nicole gave earlier in the episode. So Gabrielle or anyone listening, so though the boundaries for you, you may want to communicate it. What are those tips? Well, using I statements, not saying you, we're being very direct to talk about I, to talk about me, doing so in an emotionally calm environment or an emotionally neutral environment. So not when the other person or yourself are emotionally reactive. So this may mean planning ahead. If you know someone has space in their day at a certain time, or you could call and ask them, hold on. 
And of course, communicating using calm, assertive, and respectful language. Now you'll have more access to that calm, respectful, and assertive language when you are in an emotionally neutral environment and also have the understanding that the person you're speaking and having this communication with is also in a space of emotional neutrality. Thank you, Gabrielle, for that question. And I want to acknowledge and celebrate you again, as Nicole did, for being in that space of self-witnessing and for the work that you've already done to get to the space to be able to even ask that question around boundaries with your father. Next question is from Anna in Columbus, Ohio. Hi, my name's Anna. I'm calling from Columbus, Ohio, and I was calling to see about um, my mom wanting to come over. I have a son, she's three and a half, and I know she wants to see him, Um, but I always feel very on edge when she's around, and I guess you would say I'm comfortable. Um, I definitely am always waiting for her. I'm always worried about her saying something weird or something uh, like veiled, excessively failed judgment. Um, There, you know, has been like a huge path that I know I need to work through. And I know these are my things that I need to address. And I don't want to say get over, but basically like work through and come out on the other side. So I feel bad not letting her see her son and you know she's not gonna be here forever so but I also am not happy when she's around so um I don't know like how long do I just not let her see not let her come over in my space um so basically yeah and if she's not like actively being super terrible do I have the right to just not let her over because I feel icky you know so anyway thank you so much um I really appreciate it and have a great day thank you Anna for such a great question um I think one that probably a lot of us listening can relate to Anna's question essentially is about setting boundaries with a parent figure especially when a grandchild is involved, of course, who might be impacted by the types of boundaries we set with our family. Um, so I think a lot of people, I think I know myself included, when I didn't have those big glaring moments of, you know, quote unquote, bad things that had happened in my family relationships, I really struggled to feel okay with allowing my feelings to use Anna's words of ickiness or of, you know, me just not feeling great in these relationships. I really struggled to allow myself even to acknowledge those feelings and to allow those feelings to be with what was. When I didn't see a big, bad, glaring reason why not to be in relationship with these people, I really struggled to honor the actual emotions I was having. So this is where it's really helpful for Anna and anyone else listening to cultivate self-compassion, especially when we witness feelings of being on edge or of fear, anything that we could wrap up in the worry category. Because chances are when we're feeling that, that's an indication that our nervous system is involved, which is usually an indication that there was a past experience that was overwhelming for our nervous system. Of course, though, a past experience that's being repeated in the present moment. So when that's the case, 
we do want to honor those feelings. We might want to explore, you know, what is coming up for us? What are we fearful that mom might say or do? And how will that impact me? And we want to allow that to be what's real for us and not just to say that, well, because mom's not doing something terrible, that this fear, this worry, or this experience isn't valid because it is. And as Anna begins to maybe dive into this exploration, she might come to the awareness that that's actually not comfortable. These things mom might say or might do, they might be causing her very real discomfort that she might want to address with mom before she can decide when it's appropriate to have mom back over. Meaning, Anna might want to set a boundary. Anna might want to create change in her relationship with mom before she has clarity on when it's appropriate to open the door back up for a visit from mom. And again, just playing some scenarios that could look like, right, Anna deciding that each and every time mom says that weird comment or, you know, brings up something that makes her uncomfortable, that it's now Anna's responsibility to make a choice to end the conversation. Now, doing this is a great example of a boundary, one that actually empowers not only Anna, but her mother as well. Because if Anna continues to maintain that boundary, despite of course it being difficult, I'm sure despite Anna feeling badly and ends every conversation each and every time mom brings up something annoying or something uncomfortable, mom has two options. She can either stop saying that an annoying, uncomfortable thing, and Anna can now have a safer experience, conversation with her mom, or she might not be able to stop that and conversations might end and that relationship might grow some more distance. Distance, however, that will be safer for Anna in particular. So this is a great opportunity not to just say, oh, well, because something big and bad isn't happening that I should just ignore my deeper feelings. This is a great moment for Anna to begin this pathway to witness Are there boundaries? Can I create boundaries? And are my needs being met in a way that works for me? It sounds like the answer is not necessarily. And this is now where the journey can begin for Anna to create that safety, which might mean Anna showing up differently in her relationship with mom and then allowing what happens next to determine if and when the home will be open for the child. Now, of course, I'm not speaking about grandmom's relationship with the grandchild. I know that's a complicated byproduct of what happens now between Anna and mom. However, what Anna is now modeling for this grandchild is boundaries in a relationship, which is incredibly impactful for that child's future. That last part is my favorite piece of this question and answer is really that modeling of it and the act of it. So any child around us really is a sponge watching us. So less hearing what we say to them and really taking on what it is they see us doing. So that modeling yourself, Anna, for your child is, as Nicole is saying, so powerful and really sets them up to be in a position where later in life, they're not calling in with this same scenario as the mom of a child. They've seen how to navigate that process. And when you do that in a, a calm, really conscious way, you're able to take the child on the journey with you, which really is so powerful and perfectly lines us up actually, I think for next week's episode, which is reparenting. So thank you, Gabrielle and Anna for calling in. Thank you everyone for tuning in and listening or watching with us today. We will see you next week for episode 12, chapter 11, reparenting for how to do the work masterclass.